We'll read verses 1 and 2. The title of my message tonight is Purposed Comfort. Purposed Comfort. If you were here on Sunday afternoon a couple weeks ago, Jonathan preached from this text. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let us pray. Our Father, we bless you and thank you that as we read these words written to Jerusalem and at the time when they would soon be taken into captivity by Babylon, that our Lord comforted them concerning their sins, comforted them concerning the warfare that they had, comforted them concerning their iniquity. We bless you, Father, as we face this world and our sins overwhelm us. And as we feel the darkness within our own hearts, that we need not turn to any other place than to Jesus Christ. For to know that He has accomplished our salvation, that He loved us and gave Himself for us, that He loves us yet and orders our steps and indeed works all things for good. We bless you, Father, and thank you for that. We pray for those of our congregation who are sick and going through different trials and tribulations and sorrows of heart, emotional upheavals. Whatever the case, we know that you know your children and you've known them from all eternity. And what comes their way is according to your plan and purpose and by your goodwill. And we do bow and thank you that you would even consider us. That you would be mindful of us. For we know what we are by nature. And we're thankful for what we are by grace. Help us, Lord, tonight to worship you in spirit and in truth. Enable us by your grace to worship you bow us down and cause us to consider what is before us. We pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Now we have in this book of Isaiah that the promise of the coming of the Messiah, the preaching of the gospel and the approaching captivity were all elements of what Isaiah taught to his people. They're approaching captivity because of their sin and their idolatry and rebellion against God. Our Lord will send Babylon to them to take them captive. He will cause Babylon to hold them until he causes a king of the Medes named Cyrus to deliver them. This is the Lord's doing from start to finish. This is not... The Lord being caught off guard by the murmuring and disobedience of Israel. But he knows Israel. And he knows you and I as true Israel. The Israel of God. The things that, This is a prevalent theme throughout Scripture, throughout this teaching. Beginning in chapter 1. 
when he told Israel that he was going to dispose of them. But he said, except for that remnant according to the election of grace. In chapter 2, he talked about the raising up of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, he said, he told them that that uh, uh, he was going to take away the stay and the hope of all they had and leave with them a bunch of children to rule them and foolish people. And it would be a time when the children would not respect their elders and their ancients would be disregarded. And he would have nothing to do with them. But then he finished that, those sayings were saying, but tell the righteous, it shall be well with him. And that's the way it's been all the way through this book. We see that Israel has been charged with their sin, and yet we see the mercy and grace of God over and over again. You see, the captivity of Israel is a sure result of their idolatry. And though under the old covenant it was punishment, it pictured the chastisement of the Lord's people when they go astray. Israel as a whole was on the road to dissolution. But there was a remnant according to the election of grace. That remnant would hear. That remnant would take heed. That remnant would take to heart the promise of the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They indeed believed a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son who would be God with us. They believed a virgin would conceive and a child would be born and a son would be given who would rule the people and, and, and his name would be Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. To these people alone, the elect remnant, the words of the Lord here are true and they are true comfort, though they were spoken on the eve of the impending Babylonian captivity. This our last chapter, chapter 39, ended with the fact that God told Hezekiah, Babylon's going to take away everything you showed them. Babylon's coming in. Chapter 39 and verse 6, it says, Behold, the days come, that all that is in thine house and that which is thy father's have laid up in store until this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Nothing shall be left. So the words of comfort here... <laughs> precede the captivity that they're going to be going into. They precede the impending doom that this nation faces and the struggle that they're going to have as they spend many, many years in captivity to Babylon. So God comforts His people before He sends them into captivity. It's a wondrous thing. And His words are comfort to His people. To His people. For the believer who is under the new covenant, not the old covenant, the believer, these are the promises of the gospel and they are yea and they are amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of us goes astray. That's not, you know, some people say, well, if I, if I sin, don't say that because you will. Just say when. Because you're going to. You're going to. It's not an excuse. There's no excuse for it. We're guilty of it when we do it. When we sin, we're guilty of sinning. But that's going to happen. All of us are going astray, and each one of us at times will go in our own way. And in our hearts we know that the Lord wondrously has laid on Him the iniquity of Saul. That is a wondrous thing. It is a wondrous thing. We cannot keep ourselves. We know that. We are kept by the power of God. 
And as soon as our hearts and minds drift from a look at the Lord Jesus Christ, the process of bringing us home begins. As soon as we look away, God begins bringing us home. Immediately. And the sure end of being brought to Christ will be brought to sit at His feet to learn what we are and who He is. The life of the believer is one of sin and failure, captivity and rescue, and all by the grace of God. Nothing happens to you by chance. Nothing has ever occurred to God. Nothing surprises God. And you will be what you will be. And with your mind, you will serve the law of God. With your flesh, you will serve the law of sin and death until the day that you die. So the command of the Lord to the prophet, and spiritually to the preacher of the gospel, the pastor of the church, is sure and plain, and the message is likewise. It is sure and plain. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Our sin, the sin of the believer, the sin against light, is as if not more so deserving of eternal damnation than the sin of the profligate. Perhaps it's even more deserving because the Spirit has taught the believer the just penalty for sin. And all he has to do is to look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and see how God feels about sin. And it is no wonder that the believer, when his sin is disclosed, is ashamed and embarrassed about it. Yet when we fail and falter, the word of the Lord to the pastor is not to beat us up, not to call us out. The word to the pastor is this, say unto my people, be comfortable. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, thus saith the Lord. The law says punish. The law says rake them over the coals. Legalistic religion will do that. Legalistic religion will skin the hides and shear the sheep. That's what they do. And they whip them with a stick because you can't lead a goat, you have to drive a goat. <laughs> you can only lead a sheep. But the word of the Lord is this. Consider this in light of ourselves, in light of our sin against the light that we have. God says, comfort ye my people. That's my job. My job ain't to wreck you over the coal. My job ain't to give you a hard time. Now my job is not to avoid the fact that we're sinners and to set it forth as the Scripture does and tell the truth about it. But my job is to, in the light of that fact, in the light that we may yet go into captivity to our own flesh, and probably will, I'm to comfort you with the grace of God, with the Word of God. Comfort ye my people, saith your God. That's the first verse. Now, if the command is to comfort, then their discomfort is presupposed. God would not tell His prophet to comfort His people if they were already comfortable. Evidently, they're uncomfortable, so He tells His prophet to comfort them, His preacher. There is no indication that in the throes of their sin and disobedience, they were uncomfortable. Read about Israel. They weren't uncomfortable in what they were doing when they were falling down and worshiping Baal. They weren't uncomfortable in that. They weren't uh, uncomfortable when we went to the groves and the high places. They weren't uncomfortable when they mocked God. They weren't uncomfortable when they would not listen to the prophet. They weren't uncomfortable at all. Life was good. They were in the throes of their sin. 
And I'm saying this to you. I heard a, I read a thing online the other day. One of my cousins actually wrote that when believers sin, they don't sin willfully. That's just a lie. That's just a lie. It's sad that we can become comfortable in our our uh, strayings from God. Human beings, lost or saved, even those saved by grace, do not often choose to do what is uncomfortable to them. Do you? Now, really. Now, you may under due rest choose something that makes you uncomfortable. If you're sick, you have, uh, like peanut, if you have a cancer, you may have, you may choose to take some medicine that really makes you feel bad. <laughs> but the, uh, but the goal is out there that it'll make you feel good on the other end of it. But you don't do that, you don't do that freely, you do it under the duress of the disease in order to be cured. People don't do what makes them uncomfortable. People say, leave your comfort zone. That's the big deal today. Leave your comfort you don't. You never leave your comfort zone. Nobody ever does. Unless you're forced out of it by some outside force of duress. You simply don't. If you are in sin, if you are looking away from Christ, I'm telling you right now, you're comfortable there. Or you wouldn't be doing it. That makes sense. That makes sense? Of course it does, because it's true. All our sin is willing. It's willingly done. And and while in pursuit of our desires, our hearts are not discomfited in that practice. Why then is the instruction of the Lord to comfort His people? The command comes with their sin, or rather, the command comes because it is the Lord that has created the discomfort. They were comfortable where they were. Now they're uncomfortable. Why? The Lord has created the discomfort. What did He do? I'm going to put you in captivity. You're going into a land of a people who don't know and don't know me and don't care about me, who don't care about your God. You're going to lose everything you have. He makes them uncomfortable. And then He cries to His preacher, Comfort them. Comfort you, comfort you, my people. He has confronted them with their sin and shown that in the end it brings forth death and they will become captive to the enemy. And this is every case in the method of grace. A need is not undressed until a need exists. Men in pulpits today are trying their best to convince people that they need God and they simply don't. They're comfortable where they are. But if God makes them uncomfortable, you know what they'll do? They'll cry out to God. But God's going to have to make them uncomfortable first. I can't do it. I might tell a sad story. I might get up here and be ugly and try to try to uh, call people out in their sin. I, I might I'm not to do that, but that's not going to do any good. It ain't going to change nobody. Nobody's going to change until they're made uncomfortable where they are. Hunger does not occur where nourishment is unless a nourishment is removed. That's when hunger occurs. Thirst does not occur until refreshment is gone. That's when it occurs. As long as there's a glass of water, as long as I got, we've got bottled water on our shelves over there, as long as there's a bottle of water, I don't get thirsty enough. But let all the wells dry up and all the water go away, and I guarantee you I'll want water. And I'll want it at any cost, whatever it takes me to get it. And these people weren't uncomfortable in all their years of idolatry 
and all the falsehood in which they practiced, they weren't uncomfortable until the Lord made them comfortable. Uh, the Lord made them uncomfortable. It was the Lord who closed Hannah's womb. You remember that? Hannah prayed that the Lord would open her womb and give her a son. She said, if you'll give me a son, I'll give him back to you. He gave her Samuel. Why did she pray for the Lord to open her womb? Because the Scripture says prior to that, the Lord had closed her womb. Made, it un- made her uncomfortable in her barrenness. Also used the, her husband's other wife who teased her and mocked her because she didn't, didn't have any children. Make her uncomfortable. Well, what did that uncomfortable do? Made them call out on God. Made them call on God. And God had a message for her. You're going to have a baby. <laughs> he opened up a womb and gave her Samuel. This became one of the greatest prophets of the, of the Old Testament. It was the Lord who closed her womb and it was... And that was the cause of her crying to the God to open it because she was uncomfortable in her situation. The threat of sure captivity troubles the mind and the heart of the people, even even if they could hear the even as if they could hear the boots of the Babylonian army marching against them. And this pictures the conviction by the Holy Spirit when the believer is confronted with the manner in which he has dishonored his Savior and the darkness enters his bosom that can be felt and grasps the heart and the mind. What am I to do for such a one? What's the preacher to do? Comfort you. (laughs) Well, I don't deserve to be comforted. I know. Neither do I. But the Lord says, comfort you, my people. The Lord says, speak comfortably to him. Speak to his heart. And cry, verse 2, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her. Cry unto her. That word cry means call out. means to recite. It means to proclaim. It means to preach to him. It means to preach to his heart. That means his innermost being. Preach the gospel to him. Shall the preacher point out the sin? I grew up that way. That's what they'd do. They'd bring you for the church. Bring you for a disciplinary committee to straighten you out. Is that what we need to do? Do I need to stand up here if I find you in fault? Say, look, we're going to put you up here in front of the church. We're going to have a court. We're going to judge you. Sometimes preachers openly embarrass and shame the people. I think it was old Harry Sims one time. There was a lady sitting there. maybe may Ralph Barnard. There was a lady sitting on the front seat of the front pew of the church she had on a real short dress and she was showing her underwear when she crossed her leg. Barnard said, if you'll just close the gates of hell, I reckon I can go ahead and preach tonight, you know. But <laughs> Is that what we're to do? We'd call it out. We'd call you out. We'd have you disciplined. We'd church you, throw you out. What are we to do? Well, you, the fact of sin is not an issue. Not for a discomfited people. They know they're sinners. When God discovers you, that's how He discovers you, by disclosing what you've done and what you're doing. The fact of sin is known by the offender and it's not even in question. When our Lord said, come let us reason together, He didn't say, let's reason whether or not you're a sinner. Did He? In chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins... Well, wait a minute. That's not an issue. There it is. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, though they be red like crimson, that's the, they there. They shall be like wool, and they shall be white as snow. Sin's not an issue. If you're a child of God, you will, your sin will be disclosed, and He will make you uncomfortable in it and embarrass you. Embarrass you. And then they send his preacher to comfort you. To comfort you. The people are discomforted. And the Lord is about the business of comforting them. I think of Simon Peter. Who after the Lord was risen from the grave. And Simon was ready to give up religion altogether. He said I'm going to fishing. And he didn't mean I was going to go out to the lake for a few hours. And try to catch a bluegill. Peter was a fisherman by trade. Peter said, I quit this religious business. I'm going back into the fishing business. And he did. Went out that night and cast his nets on both sides of that boat and nothing was caught. Come back empty-handed. Said, coming back to shore, there stands the Lord Jesus Christ. What an opportunity to wreck this fool over the coals. He said, children... Do you have any meat? <laughs> Are you hungry? <laughs> he knew they hadn't caught nothing. And Peter said, I've been fishing all night and they caught the He said, Well, cast it out on that side of the boat. And he did. And they couldn't draw the net in. It had so many fish in it. And when they got on the shore, the Lord made them dinner. And he took Peter off by himself and said, Peter, do you love me? He said, Yeah. Feed my sheep. Comfort my people. Do what I've just done for you. Said that three times. Finally, Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. The wonder of the fact that our Lord, through the preaching of the gospel, comforts His people by telling them of things past. Not things in the future, not things they have to do. Things that have been addressed and handled and finished by God Himself. The preacher's not to say straighten up and fly right, because you won't. The preacher's not to lay down rules and regulations of how you live, because you won't live by them. You'll fake it. <laughs> sure you will. People fake it all the time. Up in Iowa, where, those, where the Dutch Calvinists are up there, boy, they're tough nuts. They're legalists. And they act like they're holy, buddy. And they're going, you're going to run, you're going to, you're going to, Walk the line with them. You can walk them. You can't have a TV in your house. Absolutely can't. Every one of them got a TV in their house. But you can't have a TV in your house. So when the preachers come around and the deacons come around to check the house, you know what the people do? They hang a towel over their TV. And you know what's under that towel. Everybody knows it. The deacons know what's under that towel. The preacher knows what's under that towel. But he can't see that TV so they don't have a TV. They're all in line. What a bunch of hypocrites. I can give you rules. I can give you regulations. And you'll be like Paul. Before the law, I was blameless. <laughs> but he broke every one of them. He broke every one because he said, I, until I learned what the law meant, I didn't even know what sin was. Preachers not say God helps those who help themselves. Preachers not say you take the first step and God will take the next step. No. The preachers say Messiah has come. Christ has come. The Savior has done His work in the earth. The comfort preached and cried and called out and read and recited and proclaimed is that God has done a thing. 
a wondrous thing that's marvelous in our eyes. He says to people who are about to go into captivity, you're already forgiven. (laughs) What? You're already forgiven. I thought that was my punishment. I thought that was my chastisement. It is, but you're already forgiven. It's not going to be held against you. It's not going to be held against you. He's already forgiven the sin that was yet to be committed. One time many years ago, I preached at a fellow's house. And I made that statement, God has forgiven all our sins. Christ paid for all our sins, past, present, and future. He called me the next morning and said, I'll never hear you again. He said, because you give people a license to sin by saying Christ died for your future sins. If He didn't die for them, I'm going to hell. If He didn't pay the sin debt of my future sins, I'm going to hell. And that's a fact. He's already forgiven us. Comfort ye. Comfort ye, my people. Before the elect remnant had gone headlong into their idolatry and disobedience, the Lord had already forgiven them. By the blood of the substitute, both in eternal purpose as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and at the appointed time on the cross of Calvary. What is the comfort? What is What will comfort you? Nothing will comfort you but the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the effectual grace of God on your behalf. That's the only thing that will comfort you. If I give you something to do, you're going to fail. Then you're going to get mad at me. Cry unto them, he said. That their warfare is accomplished. <laughs> what? Well, we're getting ready to go into the into into this strange country. We're getting ready to go into captivity. We're going to be there for seventy years. Your warfare is finished. Your warfare is accomplished. Now we know that the believer is in a constant state of warfare within himself, seeking to bring all things to the obedience of Jesus Christ, and that warfare will not end until we die and go to the grave. The warfare that's spoken of here is the, the warfare of Satan against the elect. And that was accomplished when the Lord bruised the serpent's head. But this comfort is derived when the believer realizes that he has never been in the battle. The battle has never really been his, not that battle. You weren't in the battle for the saving of your soul. You weren't in that battle. Tell them, crying to them, that warfare is accomplished. That her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all our sins. The Lord won this battle for him, for the believer, when he had no idea that he was being held captive by Satan. But our Lord said, Here's how Satan is cast out. Here's how the devil is cast out by the finger of God. When a strong man holds his captives in peace and his, all his goods are his and his palaces in peace are stronger than him, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, are stronger than him, God, the man of war, are stronger than him, comes into his palace and binds him up and takes those he holds captive in all his spoil. That's the work of the Lord. That's how you're saved. That's how the Lord saved you. Comfort comes when we hear through the preached word that our iniquity is pardoned. 
Does it ever just come home to you and a sudden you're driving down the road and all of a sudden you think, my iniquity's taken care of. I feel so undeserving of such grace and I am. Couldn't deserve it. Your iniquity is pardoned. We know the word pardon in the Old Testament is an Old Covenant word, really. It's not used in the New Testament because something else happened. Pardon implies guilt. We, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, but everybody knew that Richard Nixon was guilty. <laughs> Even he admitted it, that he was guilty of tinkering with the investigation. He was pardoned. But we have more than a pardon. We have a propitiation and an expiation so much so that when we stand before God we're not guilty at all no record of our guilt because we've been justified but our iniquity notice the verb is <laughs> state of being it is pardon not it can be if you do something not it might be if you work really hard and straighten out your life. No. You're getting ready to go into captivity. The darkness is going to overcome you and it will overcome you throughout your life. But your iniquity is pardoned. Sweeter words cannot be found than that. That in the midst of our realization and disclosure of our own iniquity to know that it is pardoned, forgiven, and put away. David. While his people were at war. Was sitting in the palace. He should have been out there leading the army. But he wasn't. All the other kings were fighting. But David was home in his palace. One day he goes up and looks out the window. And there across the way on the roof is this gorgeous woman. Taking a bath. And he likes her. He's enamored with her. Her name is Bathsheba. And he's being the king, said, bring that gal to me. He already had a wife. And she was another man's wife. And he took her. And he laid with her. And he got her pregnant. She was married to a good man named Uriah captain in his army David told Joab go out and have Uriah come back I'm going to give him a little R&R &R. you people who have been in the service know what that is R&R, &R, the rest of the relaxation <laughs> you a little R&R &R from the battle he calls Uriah back and says go spend some time with your wife the reason he wanted her to spend him spend time with his wife so he could blame Uriah for the pregnancy that she'd, she had but Uriah was an honorable man. He said, no king, I'll go lay down on my doorstep till you call me to go back into battle because I'm a, I'm a warrior and that's what I'm supposed to be. Supposed to be fighting for the king. So he couldn't get Uriah to lay with his wife. So he sent Uriah out and had him killed in the battle. When the word came back that he was killed, David said, well, you know, war is hell. That happens in war. People get killed. David was comfortable. He was comfortable. No indication 
until Nathan, the prophet of God, showed up one day. He said, David, something terrible's happened in your kingdom. David said, what? He said, there was a man down the road here that had one little lamb. He loved that lamb. His lamb just, it was his pet. He kept it with him all the time and he, he, he combed it and fed it and heck, it probably slept in the bed with him. He loved that lamb. He said, and down the road there was this rich farmer that had thousands of lambs. And this rich farmer decided he was going to throw a party. And that rich farmer went and took that band, one lamb that that man loved and killed that lamb for his party rather than using the 10,000 that was already his. And David said, that man ought not live. He ought to pay fourfold for everything he's done. Nathan said, it's you, David. You could have had your choice of any woman in Israel. You're the king. But you chose the one woman that meant something to one man named Uriah. You could have had them all. They were all yours to take it. Just took her. You're the thou art the man, he said. Listen to what David said in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verse thirteen. And David said unto Nathan. Suddenly David got uncomfortable. <laughs> I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to him, what? And you're going to pay for it, bud. What did he say? And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. <laughs> That's grace. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Comfort comes when the gospel reveals that we have received at the Lord's hand double for all our sins. The debt paid, the sins put away. Our sins expunged and His righteousness imputed in its place. Double for all our sins. At His hand. At His hand. And so we can say, well, if He puts His hand to it, who can turn it back? Who can turn it back? His accomplishment. Comfort you, my people. I say unto you, bunch of ragtag sinners out there. And this little ragtag sinner up here. You're his. Your sins are forgiven. Your iniquity is pardoned. And the Lord has given you double for all your sin. Be comforted. Father, bless us to understand and pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.